We'll turn in the Pew Bible, if you have one, uh, to page 1085. If you have your own Bible, we'll be in Acts 5, verse 17 to 32, as the Alphas can be dismissed. So Acts chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 17. Uh, And if you wouldn't mind, please stand in the honor of the reading of the word of God. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of all the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet, here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you instead to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Father, we thank you for this word. We ask for your help as this is a hard passage, as a passage that has been mentioned multiple times over the last few years. God, we ask for your grace. We ask that you would speak to us. God, we ask that you would transform our hearts and our minds and and that we with boldness would, would be able to proclaim from our hearts how we want to obey you. God, would you help us to do so? Would you help us to worship you this morning? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, today, as you probably noticed in the bulletin, we, we consider the battle of the church. In 2020, Acts 5.29 was referenced over and over and over again by Christians and churches seeking freedom from tyranny. They can't tell me to wear a mask. They can't tell me where I should gather. And the pandemic debate hinged on one big question. Who's in charge? Peter isn't saying that we shouldn't obey men. 
if we see in verse 26, he actually submits to their request to return. But rather, Peter says, when there's a conflict of authority, we obey God. Consider Peter's words from his first letter that he wrote to a church. He says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. We are called to love our neighbors and submission to the government is one way that we do that. But there is a caveat. When the government tells Christians that they aren't allowed to worship, we must obey God rather than man. We submit to him who is of highest authority. And so if anyone, your spouse, your boss, the government, even your pastor, tells you to sin, they have gone too far. And so in our text this morning, they're banishing the worship of the early church. Worship through evangelism. Worship through declaring to others who Jesus is and what he has done. And although it's pretty dumb, banning the use of heating oil or propane is not a biblical question, church. Different topic for a different Sunday or a different time. When the government forbids what God commands, church, we obey God. And the pandemic was hard. It was a battle. And the battle is still raging today in our minds, in our hearts, in our actions. And next month marks four years to flatten the curve. And I say this as one who is leading this church, who led this church through the pandemic, that the church wasn't prepared for the questions we were all posed of who's in charge. And everyone, including us, kind of just made things up on the fly. But the early church, as we see in the text, was prepared for the battle before them. It was at their doorstep. This passage, I think, will help us that next time somebody comes in and gives us a command, a hard question to answer related to authority, that maybe next time will we be prepared to answer and respond biblically. Because we are in a battle. The same battle the early church was in. And so let's, before we look and break down this passage, remember where we are at in the book of Acts. We took last week off, but last time we were in the book of Acts, the movement of the early church was growing. The church was flourishing. They were committed to one another, and God started to increase their influence now outside of Jerusalem as people from the surrounding towns were starting to join them, and more persecution was beginning but that persecution brought more growth. And as I've told you, that we will cap this section of the last few chapters in chapter 8, where a deacon of the church, as he was just appointed, will end up being stoned to death. And so as this church is growing, they are loving one another in the church. A hard shift happens in verse 17. It says, but the high priest rose up 
because he was jealous. Those with authority who are told to repent don't like to give up their authority, do they? Even in today's world. That's when persecution happens. You're familiar with the story of what's taking place at Mid-Vermont and their banning from sports is when they stood up to the government, the government said, ha, ah, we're in charge. You can't do that anymore. And so they were punished. Maybe you've seen a Liam Neeson movie. They they're all kind of have the same theme except for his Star Wars ones where a guy, or bad guys rather, takes something that he loves dearly, right? And then he sets out with a lot of vengeance, so we can just, just disregard the vengeance and the sin that he has, but he sets out to retrieve what is rightfully his. Proper jealousy desires what is rightfully one's own, maybe like your spouse or your kids or my coffee mug. Okay, so if somebody took, we'll just say my kids or my wife, like I would do everything in my power to go and retrieve that which is rightfully mine. That is, that is proper biblical jealousy. And jealousy isn't always bad, but the idea here is that of envy, desiring and seeking something that, that you don't have a right to. And so at the hands of the high priests, as they begin to be pried open from their tight grip on their authority, the, the high priest is squeezing harder and harder and his power is being stripped and he holds on for dear life. And so he uses his authority to make sure that he gets what he wants. And so the apostles are arrested. He says, we'll make an example of them. And ironically, as he's put into a public jail, an angel is the one who delivers them from the jail. And guess what's funny about this is that the Sadducees didn't believe in angels. And so God has a little bit of a sense of humor here. We see that God is in charge. And while the leaders plot and they plan, God is the one who saves the apostles. And the apostles respond with further obedience. They just go back to the temple and continue to preach the message they were told. You can't say that anymore. The apostles were told where to go, to the temple. They were told what to do, to teach and preach. And so they do so without hesitation. At first light, they are at the gates of the temple. And while this is happening, the whole government in the background is plotting and planning. You see that in verse 21. It says the officers, the council, the senate, the executive, judicial, and the legislative branch, both assemblies are posturing for their authority. But like Herod was before Jesus, or the crowds in Acts 2 when they saw the tongues of fire, or we will see Peter in chapter 10 when he sees a vision, they're at a loss for words. They are perplexed, you see in the text. It's the same word we see in those three other texts. They don't know what's going on. How'd they get out of jail? Why are they in the temple again? But they go back and they fetch them. They want to question them and they tell them again, be quiet. But Luke says in verse 28, they commanded the commands, maybe with a fist slamming down on the table. Don't say what you're going to say. Be quiet. We have the authority. You don't, and we want to maintain that authority. The battle the apostles face, though, is not before them. It is inside of them. 
Because the apostles remember Acts 1.8 that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. They remember the words of the angel that says, stand in the temple, speak to the people all the words of this, this life. The high priest says, stop it. He stands up. But Peter stands up in opposition, representing the entire church with the apostles, unified on mission. So we can't do that. We must obey God. We saw last time we were in Acts that this church was unified. They were doing marvelous things. They had come out of the last bout of persecution unified together. And so Peter lovingly exclaimed, he doesn't shout back at them. He just says, we're going to obey God. Like Joshua did before him in the midst of an evil generation, Joshua said this, if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. He's talking to God's people, whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. In this famous verse, many of you are familiar, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As for the house of God, they will obey God. And with integrity in his speech and with integrity in his actions, Peter proclaims the truth because he knows who's in charge. We're going to continue to teach. Peter understands that a lack of integrity leads to death. And so Peter is probably thinking and applying Psalm 90 verse 12. He says, so teach us to number our days so that we may get a heart of wisdom. And so with death so prominent before him, as a response to a lack of integrity, look in that previous section, when Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit, their grave is probably still warm. Peter knows the consequences of disobedience to the highest of authority. And so judgment is one way that Peter responds to their threat and motivates his obedience. The battle inside of him is to trust God and obey God. And the grounds of his obedience isn't just fear, though. It's also blessing. He says that it's Jesus who died. It's Jesus who rose. It's Jesus who ascended, who sits at the right hand of the Father, who rules and reigns from heaven. And so it's not just fear of hell. Peter trusts, you see that word in verse 31? His leader, who has highest authority. If you remember our time back in Acts chapter 4, Peter said this before the same council, whether it is right in the sight of God to, to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And having seen the resurrected Christ, having seen him ascend to heaven, Peter knows who has the authority. And it isn't the guy who's sitting on the bench talking to him right now. And I think the irony goes even deeper because the root word or one of the root words for the term high priest has the same root word that Peter uses in verse 31 as Jesus as leader. What Peter is saying is that Jesus, Jesus is the greatest leader, the one with most authority. 
And so what Peter says in verse 32, God, the Holy Spirit, he compels us to do what Jesus commanded. In these words, Peter is marking that the community is aware of being indwelt by the Spirit to such a degree that they were God's very voice of evangelism. For Peter, he knew what happened to Ananias and Sapphira when they lied to the Holy Spirit. And so Peter is going to make sure he has integrity and he submits to the highest of authority. And this whole scene mirrors Jesus's trial. With Jesus, the council feared the people. In Matthew 10, Jesus told them, be wise as serpents, innocent as doves. You'll be delivered to courts. You'll be flogged. You'll bear witness of my name, of the gospel. But he says, do not be anxious. The spirit will give you the words to say. Church, it is happening in this text right now. What Jesus said would take place. And the battle for Peter and the church is, is, is internal. Will he obey? Will the church submit to what God says? Will, God, will the church submit to the priestly authority, the high priest before him, the trial that is before him? Or will they submit to God's authority? The disciples proved to us it is possible to obey God and not men. And so as the church battles this internal pressure from within us, we submit to God. We should be jealous for the things that God is jealous for. We should trust God when we are perplexed and confused. We should submit to the righteous judge when faced with judgment ourselves. Church, the church this church is God's tool to use for his purposes. We all got here today in a car. I don't think any of you walked. Who got you here? Was it the car or the driver? The answer is both, right? Consider God as the driver here in the text. And the church is the car here in the text. God's in charge, but the church is God's conduit of grace to accomplish his purpose. Like a car was the means by which the driver accomplished the purpose for you to get here this morning. The church is God's tool to save those who would believe the gospel. Peter knows this, and the religious leaders' fight isn't with Peter. As a car submits to his driver, the wheels and the action of the one steering or pushing the pedals, so too the church submits to the actions of God, the will of God to reach a lost and dying world around us. But church, we have to be honest that our temptations to comfort, our, intention, our, our temptations to avoid conflict give us pause oftentimes, right? It causes hesitation on our end. Will we let God use us? I don't want my stuff to be taken away, so I won't speak up. I don't want to lose my job. They already think I'm weird. My neighbor won't look at me if I speak up. Church, God's plan A 
is for the church to bear witness to the world around us as we call people to believe the gospel, to repent of their sin, to believe and have eternal life in God through the person and work of Jesus Christ. There is no plan B for God. The church is plan A for the world. But the battle starts within us. Will we obey God or will we reject Him and submit to other authorities in our lives? In the text, the leaders thought that they had authority, but Peter knows who's really in charge. We are called to share the gospel, the good news that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And believing the gospel should lead us to repentance. The battle starts within us. And then we can face the battle around us. And it's not easy, but look at verse 33 of what takes place. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel... A teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thaddeus rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for this name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. So their jealousy turns to rage. Now they desire to put them to death. They hated Jesus. They crucified him. They hate the apostles. They probably wanted to crucify them as well. But their battle is against God, not the apostles. And the voice of reason speaks up. Gamaliel. Gamaliel reminds them of God's providential hand. And he inadvertently colors a picture for the reader that the battle is genuinely against God. And that every battle fought by man against God will end up with man losing the battle. With the cup about to overflow in the courtroom, Gamaliel says, be careful. Similar to Lot's warning at the men banging on his door in Genesis 19, 17. I beg you, brothers, do not act so wickedly. If you're familiar with the story of Lot, it did not end very well because fire and sulfur came down upon the towns of Sodom and Gomorrah. Gamaliel's the bartender in the Western movie. You got the bad guy and you got the sheriff. And the bartender, he sits there and he says, oh, bad guy. This is the sheriff sitting there calmly. Be careful. You don't know what happened to the last two guys. The last two guys are this Thaddeus and Judas. Gamaliel thinks that God will defeat the apostles. 
Thaddeus rose up. He's a prophet. He thought he was somebody, a messianic pretender, but he was put to death. The high priest thinks that he is somebody, but it's really nobody compared to God. And we're reminded that the movements of men will die. And the high priest is acting like this, Thaddeus, thinking he is somebody. The second guy, Judas, had a large following. He was a rebel against taxation. We could probably get behind that. The irony here is it comes right after Ananias and Sapphira, who love their stuff. And ultimately, Gamaliel says that God's providence won't be thwarted. But he doesn't realize that God's plans, his battle plans, are to use the church, not the priesthood. And unwittingly, Gamaliel proclaims God's providence in verse 39. He's saying, don't battle the sovereign Lord of the universe who has all authority. Gamaliel speaks truth, but he is blind and he becomes Luke's spokesman, not seeking to inflame the crowd, but he sparks a wildfire that will take the world by storm because God won't lose. And it's funny, after all this takes place, the high priests and the council, they just beat the apostles, tell them to be quiet again. But you see what the apostles do? They left rejoicing. They counted it an honor to suffer like their Lord. And they back to what they were doing previously, preaching and teaching and proclaiming who Jesus is and what he's done. And the harsh rebuke, the physical pain that they endured, it didn't stop them. Internally, they are committed to not battle God, but rather to be submitted and faithful to Him. It's a joy for them to follow the example that Jesus gave for them, to give honor to His name, where we are God's tool to reach the lost and dying world, the nation, they say, but we are to remember the battle belongs to the Lord. Friends, there is nothing that Montpelier or Washington, D.C. that can stop that truth. In fact, like these religious leaders, the cult of our country, it might actually fuel some growth in our nation. I think the church is becoming more committed where you can't just come to church and pretend to be part of the church. We, people don't like to do that. In Vermont, you actually helped me to see that. If I came from a place that is culturally Christian, where there's a lot of people as part of the church that really just like to be part of the church, but they're not really part of the church. You all want to be here. But human plans will fail. But God's providential plans won't. And it's not even a question. The battle belongs to the Lord. And as the war wages inside of us, we are to remain faithful. So friends, let's choose to obey the Lord. But as the war rages outside of the church, inflicting pain on the church, let's choose to obey Lord, the Lord even still. The battle that we face is ultimately the Lord's battle. And we are his tools to accomplish his purposes. And so I have four quick things for us to remember, to apply as we go out, face another week, in the battle that we have. First, this should cause us to worship. That's what they did. They rejoiced that God would choose them to be conduits of His grace to the world. 
He doesn't need you, but he chooses and delights to use you. When things go awry, when the battle is hard inside or outside, faithfulness is God's way to cause us to follow him in our worship. It's worship to go. It's worship to proclaim. It's worship for us to share the gospel with the lost and dying world around us and to suffer, as Jesus said we would, means that we are obeying. And we can praise God for giving us the grace to follow his commands. And it's not only worship. Second, it's an honor to be used by God. In the 18th century, I love the story, some Moravian missionaries, they wanted to leave Germany and they wanted to go to this slave colony in the Caribbean, but they were not able to go to the slave colony because they weren't slaves. They wanted to go share the gospel. So you know what they did? They sold themselves into slavery. They're gonna get there. And as they were, boat was leaving the port. Their family recorded these words. They stayed up on the boat and they shouted out to their family, may the lamb receive the reward of his suffering. Paul refers to this in Colossians 1.24. He says, now I rejoice in my suffering. Sounds really odd, doesn't it? He says, for your sake and in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Christ's work on the cross for us was effective. There's nothing that they add to the atonement to achieve salvation, but the suffering shows the world around us, the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. So don't let fear cause you to avoid suffering because when suffering does come, church, the world around us can see Jesus in you while you continue to proclaim the gospel to them. So it leads to worship. It's an honor. Third, we get to do this together. Peter stood up for the church, becoming the spokesman for the church. They went to prison together. They broke out together. They went to the temple together. They were beaten together. But they rejoiced together. If you and I are arrested, we still get to be the church together. It just might be in a different location. Fourth, it's God's battle. So we can have confidence. The battle is God's. But it's a spiritual battle. Paul said this in Ephesians 6, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Sounds daunting, but God will win. And so we can be confident. We can trust him. He will win even when it seems that we are losing or maybe you feel like you've already lost. John Calvin said, when the favor of God breathes upon us, there is none of these things which may not turn out to our happiness. Let us then be contented with the testimony of Christ rather than with the false estimates of the flesh and then after the example of the apostles, we will rejoice in being counted worthy of shame and suffering. Friends, if you die, 
you'll be with Christ. You win. And we often are too worried about tomorrow because our focus is on tomorrow, not the God who controls and is sovereign over tomorrow. And it gets harder for the apostles, right? I've already told you. But remember Paul's words in Romans, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? It's a win-win situation for us. And so Christian, God gave you his son because you deserve death. Jesus died in your place on the cross for your sin. He rose to give you a new life. And you may suffer, you probably will suffer for righteousness sake, but God will keep you for eternity. And you will lose nothing, but gain everything. If you're not a Christian, you may think it isn't worth it to die to yourself. Matthew 16, Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? And what shall a man give in return for his soul? Your soul's at stake. You can't save yourself. The internal battle is a decision you're responsible for. So ask yourself, will I believe or will I follow? Or will I reject and suffer the eternal consequences of sin? We started our time talking about the pandemic. External factors inflicting pain on us, taking away our freedoms. When we or anybody else get in the way of God, thinking that we have authority, it's a result of that sinful nature that we have. That's the real pandemic that we all face. And the consequences of that one are very severe. But for those who believe the gospel, we are delivered from sin's penalty and power, and we can have confidence in God's power, his assurances, his goodness, that even the presence of sin that is before us will never destroy us. When the response to God or the church is sin, we need not submit to that sin, but rather we submit to God. And so when you watch the news, who's in charge? It's really easy to figure out how people are responding, how they view it. But what do you think? Is it God? Or is it man? Or is it you? Will we submit to God or man? When we submit to God, it naturally leads us to obedience and worship. And I pray this prepares us, church. But we can be honest. We need God's grace. If the battle comes to our front door, it probably won't be pleasant. But the early church was prepared. And so let's ask God to help us to be prepared. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you that you are God and that we are not. And so whether we or others are jealous or we or others are confused or there's judgment before us or a judgment that needs to be made in our heart, God, we thank you that you will succeed. We thank you that the plans of man will not. God, we ask that you would help us to obey. It's a lot easier to say it than do it. 
when it's of our own accord. But God, we ask that you would give us power by your spirit in your name to follow you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And God, we ask that you would give us joy in that. As James would say, count it all joy when we face fiery trials. Father, we need your help. We ask for your help. Would you help us to remember that you are God and we are not? And would you help us to respond in joyful worship? We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.